It's 2001. The place is Amsterdam, Holland. A shootout in the city's Docklands leaves one man grievously injured and a rival drug dealer killed outright. The injured man is Tony Spencer, aka the old man. He's from Coventry, West Midlands, England. Once a successful businessman, he is now considered to be public enemy number one by the country's national crime squad and the head of a smuggling ring who operates their business in the UK, Holland, Morocco and Spain. As Spencer's life hangs in the balance, his son, Jason, arrives at his bedside. I am Tony Spencer's son. I am Jason. But how did he get to this point? And what will the future hold? That's if the old man has a future. I spoke to True Crime Investigators UK and they are reviewing my dad's story. It's been described as raw, brutal and at times touching. Well, that's a dramatic start to a podcast. And in this series of episodes, we'll be telling the compelling story of how Tony Spencer's life came to that point. So to put that event in Amsterdam into some kind of context, basically telling the story of the life and crimes of Tony Spencer. But before that, just tell the listeners, John, how we actually came to this story. As we've mentioned previously, we attended a crime conference in London in 2021. This was the first time it had been held in this country and basically it's a true crime event which covered podcasting, live speakers, specialists, experts and anybody you could think of who was involved in the true crime world under one roof. And in 2022 we attended this event again and on this occasion we met a man called Jason Wilson who was talking about a book he'd written regarding his father's activities, Tony Spencer. And we interviewed Jason shortly afterwards. Did you come to CrimeCon to look for a, a podcast? I've not asked you this before. No, it was really to get to know a few people, get become part of the community, I guess. We had a talk on a Sunday, which was a new thing for me, to sit in front of an audience and do an interview. But it's really becoming part of the community. But when you get there, you find out a lot of the community is about their murders and there's that sort of subculture there. So the the organised crime wasn't a massive part of CrimeCon. So we were kind of a, a little bit different, but then I guess everyone looks at themselves and we're all a little bit different there. I think the reason is that, you know, you very often don't get people in organised crime of sort of a, say, gangster status come to tell you what they've been doing. So it's not not the normal thing to do, is it? No, I mean, usually it's, it's written by authors who rely on research and police sources and maybe people are used to being organised crime and want to remain anonymous. And this was a bit different because it was first-hand. Yeah, that kind of made it stand out a little bit. There's not a lot of people doing that just yet, but that, I mean, that might change. Now you've got podcasts and people coming forward doing interviews and then thinking, ah, maybe I'll do a book. And you can self-publish quite easily. So I think it'll probably become a big thing in future. Because when we were stood at our little desk and people walk past and there's several hundred people, you know, many hundreds of people attend, and you can see them walk past and look at you. We have a banner with our logo on and our name. Some people will say, oh, I know who you are. And others will look at you and think, well, I've never heard of them. And they sort of walk past. And the first one we did, didn't we? I said, there's lots of people walking past and they're not stopping and talking. So I'll talk to them first. Mm. So I, I sort of adopted you that. now ambushes people. Ambush people as they, as walk, they walk past. past. And of course you walk past with your wife and I just, I think the words were something like, are you inter- interested in crime podcasts? And you said yes. And I said, well, what's your interest? And then you told me that 
you'd written a book about your dad, who was quite a major criminal stroke gangster in his day. And that's how the conversation started. I think of these things, you've got to be a little bit outgoing. And it's getting used to talking about things you're not used to talking about. And all this history of my father and organised crime, it was all very new. And it's kind of getting used to speaking about it. But when you said you're an undercover police officer, I think, well, you keep pressing forward, keep pressing forward. You've got to be a bit fearless. That's the way it went. But you were quite open. Well, yes, I think yeah. the conversation went along the lines that, you know, your father, his criminal and his business career, as we know now, which we didn't know at the time we spoke, goes back to the 60s and when he was a youngster. And, of course, then, to bring it up to date, he got involved in more and more serious crime. And, of course, you mentioned that in the early days, of course, there was an organisation in the police called the Regional Crime Squad mm. that he knew because he'd been arrested and because of the way he was, he knew they were interested in him. And I think I mentioned, well, that's interesting because going back to the 80s, I was on the regional crime squad as it was then. And, of course, I saw your face, you look at me and think, my God, mm. you know, <laughs> and I looked at you and you looked at me and thought, how bizarre is this that we've got these two different sides of the story looking at each other and having a chat and realising that, there's a guy here like me who knows what you're talking about and, and what your dad was up to and what we were doing to stop yeah. it. Although I didn't take part in any of your father's surveillance or activities because although it's a regional crime squad, we were the north of England, not into the Midlands. But it's the same, same thing. Yeah. And that develops further as we'll talk later about what's happening more recently. Yeah, you were right as well. Over the days I kept going back because you do wonder the corridors and everything. And each time I added a little bit to what I knew from the first the first time I met you, I went away, thought about it, and thought, oh, right, okay. And then we come back, we talk a little bit more, and I think, oh, you you kind of got the same view of my father of this. It's kind of a game, mm. and there's two sides, but there's nothing personal. And I kind of like that sort of approach. It wasn't you weren't authoritarian in any any sort of way, and that was quite refreshing. That was yeah, because you know going back to your father's activities and and what we did. The conversation went to, well, I've written a book, you ought to read it first and then speak to me if you want to speak to me. That's how we left it on that particular day, wasn't it? After we yeah. met several times, you came back and had another chat and we had another chat and it sort of developed into a bit of interest between us. And then it was read the book and see what you think. I think that's the test if someone reads the book because people would talk with you, but some people, they don't want to do the research or they don't want to do the reading. And that was the key thing. If someone's going to read the book, then you know we're talking about the same thing rather than your idea of the thing. So so that was good. So the fact you just went away and did the research and you've read it quite meticulously as well. It was obvious that your father was a successful businessman in many, many ways, a very successful criminal in many, many ways. But he harboured this desire to be better than the authorities of the police and switched on to what the police were doing and trying to outwit them successfully in many cases. And that sort of rang true with my side that, you know, now we've met each other for some time, we can talk about it, that, you know, from the police side, that was the same way as we viewed it, that we were doing a job, we were paid to be policemen, but if you don't enjoy your work and put your mind to it, it's a, like a, just a job, whereas certainly for me and many others, police I know, it becomes a challenge and the, the thrill is to try and catch people, whereas from your father's point of view, it was the other way around. The thrill was not to get caught. 
Yeah, and it's realising you were seeing, seeing it that way that made me think, because I'd always saw it mostly from my dad's point of view, that he was very passionate, devoted to this little game. And But here you you also saw it as this kind of game where you're going to be passionate and devoted also, equally as committed. I thought, oh, OK, it is kind of like chess, but there's equality on both sides here. The only difference is you've got more resources, but he's got the advantage of knowing what's coming next and how he's, he's in control of the game, I well, guess. That's, that's a very good point because... Although, as you say, we've got more resources, what we've got to do is comply with the law. Yeah. And, you know, we can talk a lot about that in as we go along, but the law and the getting authorities to do all these things is quite a big thing behind the scenes that people don't see, which we'll talk about. But from your father's point of view, he just made it up as he went along. And there was laws enforced to stop him doing what he did. But he never took no notice of those. So it wasn't a problem for, for his side, whereas for our side, it was. And and that's the bit that people don't see on the TV programmes, all the work that goes into putting these jobs together, which is a mammoth job. And, you know, the law can get in the way because it stops you doing certain things, whereas your father, he just did and went where he fancied. Yeah, he without const- restriction. constantly just changing the plan from hour to hour. He could do that in anticipation of every eventuality, but he always knew you were kind of tied. You had, like you said, had these restrictions and guidelines. You couldn't move sharply, but he knew you had more resources. So Yeah, and part of his, well, the book clearly outlines the fact that he changed his vehicles, his phones, his locations, his associates, his countries even, to frustrate any surveillance and police activity the best he could. As far as your family was concerned, Jason, what was the makeup of your family? So we've got mother, father, married when they were teenagers, and I've got my older brother, born in 67. I'm three and a half years later. Then after me, there's my sister, another three and a half years later. So there's three children spread across seven years. Raised in Coventry for the most part. We all go Catholic school. Quite disciplined upbringing regarding school. My dad was always away a lot of the time at work. That was that was going to be my question. How much did you see of your dad when you were young? When we were very small, we saw very little of him. It's really when you we get to an age where he starts taking us to work at the weekend. My mum would be like, well, he wouldn't take us to park or out to do adventures. He would take us to work. Right. And a lot of that taking us to work was a, a ride in the van which was exciting when you were a kid at that age. And then going to work where we'd usually deposit us at one of the, the furniture shops and he'd go off and say, look, I'll be half an hour. Keep yourself busy. There's a coffee machine there and there's some paper over there if you want to do some drawing. And there'd be a, a guy running the shop would be out front and we'd just be left out back. And then in half an hour would become two hours. And that's what would normally happen on a Saturday. Because by the mid-70s, you got about 10 second-hand shops, hadn't he? Um, yeah, he started off with one small shop he called Lloyd's. And Lloyd's, we would later learn, was named after the bank. And it was rumoured that it was the first bank he'd robbed, and that's why he named it Lloyd's. Right. But in the following years, he'd built up uh, shop after shop, all in the same area, just slowly expanding, and each one he'd name after a bank. And I don't know if he was playing upon this idea of him robbing banks, or he actually had robbed the banks. There's nothing you can ever really ver- verify. But he eventually built up ten of these shops... So he was a legitimate businessman, wasn't he? Yeah, for the most part. It was 
second-hand furniture and some would specialise in white goods or electrics or televisions. And his job was really just to round up all this stuff every day, get them in the shop, sell them as quickly as possible. When was the first time that you noticed that Dad wasn't around? Do you remember one time he was there and then he wasn't? Or was it quite usual for him to be absent? He was usually absent. He was always coming in and going out. He wasn't wanted to settle in and watch the television in the evening. He didn't watch any television, as far as I I could see. So he would come in, grab stuff, go out, then come back. And that was generally what he was always on the move. It wasn't until he'd go to prison when I was about six, seven, that I actually saw him sat still where we'd go visit him on the Sunday and he'd actually have to sit there and talk with you and have a conversation. And that would be the time when I'd really get to know him. When you say you went to see him in prison, did all three children go with, with yeah, your mum? Th- yeah, the three of us would go. She'd borrow my grandfather's car and we'd drive out to Layhill. And he was there, and he didn't look like a prison, really. I was about six or seven. I was only just learning to read. And you see HMP Layhill, which doesn't make a lot of sense. HMP is not a word, so I don't really know what that's about. But it's, to me, I've been told it's a college. And all the children get told, your dad's working away, he's on an oil rig, all those sort of cliches. And mine was, he's gone to college. And so that's what I thought a college was. It was a very disciplined place. There was the teachers who wore uniforms, very you know regimented. And there was a car park, which was kind of just like your regular car park with a barrier. But there wasn't bars and wire everywhere. It was it was kind of relaxed. There was two wooden huts, and that's where we'd go and visit him. And we'd go in there early and go get a table. And the man who kind of introduced us and told us where to sit was a, a guard. But he looked like he didn't have his hat on. So he, he didn't quite look like a policeman or anything. He always had his hat off. So it was quite relaxed. And we'd just take our table number all very serious, and then all the inmates would come in and my dad would sit down and then he'd explain what he'd been doing at college that week, what he'd been studying, because that's what he was doing. He was studying every week. And and presumably all these other people um, that are also sat in the same room would be students. As far as I was concerned, they were students and they all dressed similar, all with T-shirts and they'd, they'd have trainers. They kind of had an informal uniform, whereas we on a Sunday dressed up to go visit them. Right. And it was quite striking to me that they didn't dress up to visit us. You know, I thought, well, we've kind of got our best clothes on here and they're wearing jeans and T-shirts and, oh, it's a little bit odd. And that, But then their teachers are so smart as well. They've got shirts and, you know, they're very smart. So that's the only odd thing I used to used to notice. And to be honest, if if mum and dad tell you that dad's at college, then... Dad's at college. That's Six what, or seven that's year what old you believe. believe that, yeah. I think if you were a bit older, 10 or 11, maybe you'd start to get uh, a little bit cynical, sceptical. Question it a little bit more. Yeah, and you think, HMP, hold on a minute. I have an idea what that stands for. And they do look like policemen. And, you know, they would maybe notice the hats or the numbers on their lapels and things. It must have been very strange being so young and not knowing what was happening. And obviously now you do, but then it was kept from you really wasn't it and blinded by this it, it was fairy tales after because prior him to going to prison we went to live with my auntie and so we'd lost the house but we just thought we were moving we we're going to go live with my auntie your dad's gone to college and she had an attic room quite a large attic room and me my brother and sister that was our bedroom and my mum had the spare room below and we would live with them for two years and it was it was quite never really thought anything of it we just thought oh, i've got this great room at the top of the house it's quite laid back here my dad's away studying, and I was quite proud that he was studying because I thought all the other fathers went to work. 
But my dad, as he was telling me, he was studying because he was going to do these businesses later. And that's why he had to kind of make this sacrifice. I thought, oh, wow, how impressive is that? All these fathers are just going to work. And my dad is not only going to work, he's going to study. And he's actually living at the college. He's that devoted to what he's doing. So I kind of I kind of admired it. I put it in that sort of, I framed it that way. So I thought he had this touch of superiority about him, that he was doing this thing that no one else would do unless they were absolutely dedicated. And it must be, in hindsight, you know, you've swallowed that story mm. and he lost the house. Was that because they had to sell it because of his criminality or...? Yeah, I think he sold it. It's, he had to go on the run a year before he got arrested. So apparently in that year, he'd lost a lot of his furniture shops and then we eventually we lost the house. So all his money was choked off. So he had his shops, but the people who run, ran the shops, once he was out of the picture, they weren't turning over as much as what they would do when he was there. And so they started to lose money. And the people who ran the shops, they weren't the most honest of people. They probably thought, well, Tony's away. He's not checking things anymore. If I sell stuff, what's he know whether I pocket it? There's quite a few of them because kind of, a lot of rogues were involved in these shops. Yeah, it's the same old story with most businesses, big businesses, isn't it? If it wasn't for the people at the top there, drive and determination. Yeah. And when they're not there, it tends to fall apart. So that's the scenario, really, what happened with him, wasn't it? When he wasn't there keeping his eye on it and working the hours he did, because he worked non-stop, yeah, he worked, didn't he? he worked ridiculous hours, though. My dad's critics in the family, they might say, well, he should have been there at home being a father more, but they've never seen anyone work as long as he did because he would go out early and be back late. And he was just had this complete devotion. It was always an obsession work was with him, whatever that work was. And, of course, the inevitable happens when he's not there. Other people take advantage and money's lost. And when he comes out, his it's, business is yeah, failing. Yeah, a matter of starting over again. But while he was, was inside... I actually enjoyed the visits. I thought these we, we they were treated as days out because we used to pack a picnic, and there were these family days out. And it up to then we'd been to the park with my mum, say, but we hadn't sat together as a family and talked. And that's one thing we did at visits. It was like two hours, and my dad would talk and he'd ask about our schools and how we were doing, and we'd all get a chance to talk. And then we'd all go quiet and we'd all eat this picnic my mum had made, and it was just I thought this was great. This was. And the inmates had made swings outside and me and my brother go play on the swings, then come back in. And then occasionally he would bring something in. He'd call one of the teachers over and say, uh, can you, I'm going to need to sign for this because I've made this this week. And then he'd go off, the guard would, and then he'd come back with a present. And it'd be like something he'd made in the workshop. And I'd think, Christ, he's, you know, he's, he's studying all week, completely devoted, and he's found time to make this, like a musical box he made one time. And he was, he was quite skilled that way as well. And apparently he'd made them himself. So, really, your mum and dad were creating this story, this scenario, for what must have been quite a traumatic and upsetting time for your mum. Yeah. But they, they've created this scenario that actually, looking back on it, you've got fond memories of that time. Yeah, they're probably... Yeah, as a family, they're the times we really spent time together and there was just no... I'd look, my mum my and dad would be holding hands at the table and to know your mother and father are close, that feels good. And he was always had a great sense of humour, never complained about anything. Even when we maybe were misbehaving at home, there was no complaints or t- tellings off or anything. So it, I've just f- fond, fond memories of that those few years. So that's a really interesting interview that, that gives you some idea of the makeup of the family and, and the background. 
and puts Tony's story into context, talking about his legitimate businesses and also the criminality. And although this is Tony Spencer's story, it's from the perspective of Jason. So as a youngster, you told that whole college story. You know, your dad's at college and he's studying. And that was a story to protect Jason and his brother and sister from the reality of Tony's offending and the consequences of that offending. I always find it fascinating. We've met many people of a similar ilk to Tony. I don't think we've had the insight that no doubt we are going to get as we go along because we've got Jason telling his story from the actual time with his father and all the events that uh, happened in his life. But it just, why did, well, I just never really understand why people do this to the children. They know very well that if they're going to get caught committing crime, they're going to go to prison. That's a given, isn't it? It happens. If they haven't learned the first time and continue, what what goes through the mind about the, the family? I'm, I'm not entirely sure that they actually give it any thought. I mean, that might sound a bit a bit harsh, but if they stopped and thought about it, they wouldn't be doing it. So I think putting yourself in the head of an offender, do you just say, well, I'll just crack on with what I'm doing and, and I, won't, I won't give a thought to my wife and kids? Well, Jason mentioned, didn't he, in the interview there, that, you know, his dad was at work and increasingly went to work more often from morning until night and when he came home he'd be still working and disappear for long periods of time and it was just I suspect and hopefully we'll learn more as we go along that he almost become addicted to crime didn't he the thrill of committing crime and the thrill of it all yeah and I th- if you put yourself in the position of Jason's mum I mean she must have been one hell of a woman because on one hand she's She's bringing up three three children. When he's working, he's working all hours God sends, so she's bringing them up on her own. And then when he goes to prison, she's also bringing them up, up on her own. But she's having to juggle that reality with how much does she tell the children? And we know from Jason and, and many others that we've spoke to over our career that it's very difficult for children of prison inmates, the stigma of it at school, questions asked as to why why the father doesn't come to the school or they're absent for long periods. And it must be incredibly difficult for the children and for the partner. Yeah, yeah, it must be. So hopefully we'll learn more about this as we go along, won't we? Yeah, there's just one thing about that interview, John, and that was Jason referred to you as an undercover officer. Now, that's not that's not strictly correct, is it? Can you just explain what your job was and what it entailed when you were on RCS? And I say RCS, that's because that's how we referred to the regional crime squad. Yeah, it was just to clear up that ambiguity, really, because people look at plainclothes police officers as being undercover police officers. They're not in a uniform like a traditional policeman would look. But in reality, to class somebody as an undercover officer is a completely different thing to what I did. 
well, an undercover officer is somebody who purports to be a businessman, a criminal, dresses like them, acts like them, associates with them, and basically gets into criminal gangs. And of course, that is the true definition of an undercover police officer, not somebody who just happens to be in plain clothes while he's doing police work at work. So although Jason mentions it undercover, it's not strictly true to the definition of being an undercover officer. What I did was on the regional crime squad, which we generally refer to as the RCS, and that is a police officer that was brought in late 60s into the 70s when Jason mentions that his father and all the criminals knew that if they could travel outside county boundaries where they lived, generally speaking, the the police officers in the county concentrated in crime in that county. So hit on the idea in the early days that the further that he's travelled from where they were based and lived, the local police wouldn't follow them or be privy to what was going on. So they, they formed the regional crime squad, and it says what it says, a regional crime unit. And, of course, that was, we're given free reign to travel, to commit or engage in surveillance operations and observations. Wherever the criminals went, we went, if we were concentrating on any particular person. So you may you know, travel from Coventry, and if you ended up in Glasgow, that's where you ended up. So that unit was the forerunner of what has gone through several uh, permutations and is now what we'd know as the National Crime Agency, which not only does this type of work in the UK, but throughout Europe and the rest of the world, because in modern times, people travel very quickly all over the world. So in the early days, it was the Regional Crime Squad, and that was the unit I was on. Once we'd had this interview uh, with Jason, we decided to go to Coventry, or Cov as it's known, uh, as we like to put our feet on the street as to where these things happened. We asked Jason if his mum would be prepared to talk to us, and to our surprise, and more so to Jason's surprise, she did. So our first stop in Coventry was to see Jason's mum. And you're the ex-wife of Tony Shipley. Yes. Who changed his name to Tony Spencer. That is correct, yes. And how did you meet Tony? I met him down the street after a road accident. And how old were you then? 17, we both were. Right, so that's some years ago yes, then? Yes, it is, yes. Going back quite a while. And did you know him before? or does No, that... I didn't know. I just saw him on his bike. And did you help him when he had an accident? No, the ambulance was already there. And I turned to my sister and said, that's like a fancy. And she said, well, he's not much good now. He was flat out on the road. So you fancied him when he was flat out? Yes, I did, yes. <laughs> and how did you meet him again? And then? then I met him again. I got off the bus. We always had to be home by 11 o'clock at night. So I got off the bus and there was loads of fun from Elston sitting on the bench, church bench. So we went to talk to them. And from there, we brought me home and used to meet me for work in the morning and at lunchtime and at evening. Three times a day then? Yeah, and that went on till we got married. And what did he do for a living then? Motorbikes. He was working, obviously I used to work at Menor Chain, and there's a little garage there, and later on he 
used to mend bikes in our friend's garage up the road. When you first met him, it was he'd left school. Yeah, and, and he it was, was working. Motorbikes, yeah. And then you went out with him, and eventually That's you. Right. We got married. We were expecting the first child. So when did you get married? What age? Um, you? We were eighteen. Oh right, very just old. just turned eighteen. I was got married in the August the fifth, whereas I was eighteen in the June. Right, and what sort of person was he when you first Lovely. met him? Really nice, thoughtful. If I saw anything, he'd buy it and. Very hard working, yeah. Later life and what I've read about him and spoke to people about, he was what, a workaholic, really, wasn't he? He was, really. Not at the beginning, because we used to go down... There used to be a cafe down the road, the and we used to go there and meet everybody at night, and they had bikes and things like that. But then it started to take over a little bit more and a bit more, I suppose, as he wanted some money. Would you describe him as ambitious, then? No, not really, No. We never talked about things like that, no. you see. Because later in life he'd become quite a driven man, didn't he? He did, yeah, later on. But at the beginning, no, we just took each day as it comes. And what, life was quite simple, really, then. What turned him into this sort of more driven... I don't driven... really know. He was sent to prison when he broke into the Spencer Club and he just went back to his normal job. I don't know how it took over, really. And how old were you when he did the... Burglary at the Spencer Club. At the Spencer Club. Um, was that just before me? Yeah, so he must have been 17 then. Right, so just before you met him? Yes, right. yeah. I was expecting Dean and it went to court and he was sent for three months' detention. Because then I went back home and had Dean. That was just before you met, he burgled the, the Spencer yes, Club, the social right, club, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes, yeah. And then he got sent to Borstal or something similar yes, in those was. days? Yes, I think it was, yeah. And what did you think of that? Well, it's terrible. I didn't tell anybody. My mum and dad had gone mad, I think. But you stuck with him? Yeah. And then... But that's it... what you did then, didn't you, really? Yeah. My mum and dad were always together. You know, there was never an argument in the house. When you think, well, that's what life is. And did he get into more trouble? I think he did. I can't remember what it was, the next one. I think it was bikes. Yeah, the copper. Was it the copper? Oh, it was the copper first then. So I didn't know any of this. No. It was just when it went to court. I think he was caught with quite a large quantity of stolen copper. Yes, yeah. And did he ever discuss, or did you know no. of any of his... No, but that's how I was brought up, home life and business, you see. So was Never it fair... discuss anything. Fair to say that you looked after the kids. Well, that's it, yeah. He went to work. Yeah, Which that was most it. people did in those days. Yeah, yeah. But as well as working... Selling and dealing legitimately, he was also dabbling in yes, other things, yes, wasn't he? Yeah. The copper one, did he get sent to prison for that? Yes, he did, didn't he? Two years. Yeah. That must have been the time when I was having Jason. Yeah. Because I went to live with my sister in Bedworth. Right. And you've had three children yes, in total. Yeah. Jason being one. Yeah. And you've always lived in um, this district, really? No, he got us a place in Nuneaton. Then we went to Nunts Lane and he was sent away then for the bank. And that was it then. Then my brother's got me this house, and I've been on my own ever since. And was he normally a good provider for the family? If he got it, yeah. And he was never. We never argued or anything. No. But he weren't there a lot either, so. No, because that's when he started working all hours, that's morning right, till once night. Once he worked with Debbie, yeah. 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 Then you didn't see him hell of a lot. Do you know what actually happened at the bank? Why did he do it? I haven't got a clue. I think he just needed more money because he opened body care. So he was running sh- short of money and yeah, needed... Yeah, I think so, yeah. 
That's what I can think of. And just decided to, he actually robbed the bank, didn't yes, he? Yes, he did, yeah. Was that the turning point for yeah, you? Yeah, that was the turning point, yeah. When the kids had to know yeah. who dad was and I thought, that's it. Because before that, they were probably a bit too young to appreciate they were, what was happening. I could cover it up as you say, with working away. But once they knew, I thought, no, that's, it's hurt them once too often. And you got divorced? Yes. And after that, did you have much to do with him? He used to pop mine now and again. Not that often, really. But that was it, really. And I think he, even though you were divorced, he used to keep in touch on birthdays. He was birthdays. still a friend, yes. Yeah. yeah, you couldn't dislike him. Yeah. So how would you describe, now we've divorced him and yeah. we know subsequently he didn't stop committing crime did he yeah, no he didn't no now you look back how would you describe him then just you know what's the you know i've heard various people say various things that yeah. he was a likable just a lovable rogue yeah is that how yeah. you would think of him yeah you didn't really see the bad side of him because i didn't know that side but i never think he'd got any bad in him but obviously he had you never saw that no it's how many times I and other people have heard that likeable yes, rogue yeah, type of yeah, that's right. tag, if yeah. you like. And, it, and I'm sure he's one of many people like that, isn't he? Yeah, he is, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, if he had anything, he'd give it you. Yeah. It was good of Jane to talk to us and she's given such fond memories of the early days with Tony in the background of the family until she eventually clearly had enough of his criminality and, and divorced him. And it was a real pleasure to speak to her, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Um, whilst we were in Coventry, we were told that a friend of Tony's called Pete knew that we were recording for a podcast about Tony Spencer. This is Pete, who knew Tony as Shippo and talks here about some of his more legitimate business activities. He wasn't no gangster. He did criminal things to finance businesses. He had a great brain for business, but he also had this part of his brain where once he'd achieved something, he needed to move on so things would be put onto the back burner, then it suddenly finances, and then he had to do criminal things to get to the next step of wherever he was going. I never knew him say anything really bad about anybody. I don't know whether it was luck, but when he got the contract with the gas board, then that became a world in its own. Yeah. So by the time I first met him, and I met him through my best friend at the time, Steve, I was introduced to him as my mate that's doing really well and we can earn some money through him. So Tony was, he got himself involved in recycling, as we call it today. Oh, massively, he would have been one of the first because of where Tony's place was situated, a hundred yards, because I'm not metric, from the main social security office was mainline gas. So people was told, there's the voucher, go down the road, on the corner, mainline gas, they'll sort you out. So his dad knew there was a 35 pound limit. So he would do you a cooker for 35 pound fitting, delivery, there you go. Oh, and a guarantee. Social was happy, Punter was happy, and Tony was turning over. I remember on several occasions, me and Steve taking lorry loads, Arctic loads of electric cookers up to basically the last place on God's earth, Thurso, up in Scotland, so they could all be shipped off to Orkneys and Shetlands because they were all electric, and 
we'd also then go into Glasgow, um, Meadowbank Wharf, and they would take gas and electric. But this was happening all the time, you know. So trading local, it was also... No, it was throughout all over the country, the, yeah. Throughout the country. Oh, yeah, you could go up to the Shetlands and find a Tony Cooker. That wasn't a problem. So what they call them, a Tony Cooker? Well, that's <laughs> was what, that what we they called them. I mean... <laughs> He really was a Dell boy, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the conversation he, he, he we had. Could, he could see things that normal people couldn't. Basically, I knew him sort of through, say, three, four years of the cookers, then going into body care, which, if you had to overstretch himself to start off with, trust me, he'd have been the Duncan Ballantyne. You know, he would have been the guy pure Jim would have said... That's our competition. And body care was a, a, a gym? A gym, and it was one of the first ones that wasn't the sort of gym where boxers turn up and what they call it. Yeah. This was, they were looking for the beautiful people. What went wrong, really, to make him... Boredom. Well, my understanding is that he got sort of very quickly bored with a business, wanted something else and... Because he, he could overspend whatever he got coming in. But I never seen him really spend anything on himself as such. He got wrapped up in grandiose businesses' he, ideas. He needed to be on to the next one. And I never heard from anybody that he ever complained that he'd been caught. It was like, there you go, you've had your win. I'll go and do my bit and I'll keep my head down and I'll hope others try and get out. And then I'm about to play whatever game is the next, next. game. It's fascinating, actually. Mm. I mean, we walked into this cold, didn't we, Sally? Uh, several weeks ago when we met Jason and it's what I've always thought and I've met similar people to Tony and the same scenarios it's a it's a game playing exercise and you know the psychological uh, research that shows that that's what motivates people and certainly from our side you know we were the same on our side yeah you know it was a let's set a stall out to, to catch this guy and we tried our best, he tried his best, and the best person won on the day. Yeah. Be it and that you, side you, or our yeah. side. And you accepted, <laughs> yeah, the occupation hazard. <laughs> so Tony had built up an empire and a thriving business with several second-hand shops. Here's Jason talking about the goods that he was selling from those shops. The legal goods were just your household things like televisions and sofas and some things could be rented back then. People struggled to buy big televisions and that sort of thing. Just basic furniture and then white goods. White goods started to, they become deregulated in the, I think it was the late 70s. because it was all nationalised up to that point. They started to deregulate who could sell cookers and maintain them and things. And at that point, the second-hand furniture shop started to deal in cookers in small amounts. And at that point, my dad was released from prison and he still had his Lloyd's furniture shops had gone during the sentence he'd served and he was starting from scratch effectively but he'd already built up this business plan when he was inside he was going to just do white goods but he was going to go for it on a large scale and one of the things was to secure contracts for all these uh, white goods that were written off by the government like the you know the education departments that write off things off kitchens and all these government buildings would get rid of their white goods and scrap them. And a lot of these goods were absolutely fine. It was just a case of, because it was government money, they were just kind of modernising or updating. So your dad would take the opportunity to get those kind of white goods and what give them a revamp or...? Yeah, they were sent to scrapyards and my dad thought, well, if I get the contract, I'll take all this scrap and I'll take them for parts. But what I will do, the best of them, I'll recondition them and resell them. 
as second-hand gas cookers. And that's what he began doing. But when he secured these contracts for these scrapped cookers from the government, there were thousands of them going to scrapyards in places like Wales and Scotland. And he would just say, I'll have everything. I'll pay you this small amount because they were just scrap value. And I'll take them. And then I'll break these cookers up, get everything that's good off them. And the best ones... I'll recondition and sell them. And that's what he began doing. It's like doing. the early days of recycling, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's essentially what he was... Re- it's like what he'd learned on motorcycles. When something doesn't work, you don't throw the whole thing away. You just throw away the 10% and you keep the 90%. And more often than not, you can put two together and you've got a perfect cooker all over again. And that's what he was doing. It's the same model he did with motorcycles. One man's junk is another man's gold, he used to say. So, I'm with... Jason Spencer in the Far Gosforth Street, is that correct? Yeah, Far Gosforth Street, Coventry. Yeah. In Coventry. We're just on the edge of the city centre. I've and Sally have never been here before, have we, Sally? No, absolutely. And for what it is now, it's it's actually quite a, a respectable, plush thoroughfare, isn't it? Not Lovely new buildings have been built, very oak-framed fronts, and it's probably a lot different than you remember when your dad started. Yeah, this was a real rough area back then. Um, it was most of the city criminals would have some sort of front along here. Um, there was like the gambling, um, there'd be pubs and clubs. Uh, there were a lot of cooker shops along here and secondhand shops. Um, so they'd mix along he- here a great deal. You used to always have a lot of CID. Um, CID would go from shop to shop each day, just checking the itinerary of all the shops and everything. Um, so it was a real bustling place. Sky. Um, Coventry City used to play up the road as well. So there's it, it always something happening down here. So this in the... We're we going back to the 70s, 80s? Uh, late 70s. Late 70s. This was sort of where all the second-hand gear and stolen gear would change hands and... Yeah, they used to, so the shoplifters used to go in in the morning, shoplift around the town, then they'd come down here and get rid of everything, whether it was in the shops or the pubs, and then go back and reload again. Uh, but this was, area was known for everything, all the, all the fraudsters and everything were down here. And if you really wanted to connect to people across the city, this is the area. Uh, you might be big in one district of the city, but if you were a real player, this is you'd come down here and have a place down here. So this was like the trading floor of the uh, yeah. criminal empire, really? Yeah, and there was a small network of top criminals, and beneath them there was loads of duckers and divers, all, with, uh, all hoping to get rich quick and that sort of thing. Um, but, yeah, when I see things like Mind or the Sweeney, this is what it takes me back to, where everyone's got their own thing on the go and no one's doing nine to a five, and everyone's a bit unorthodox and a bit of a character. Yeah, and your dad owned quite a lot of this area in his day. Yeah, the southern section, he had he had two main businesses here spread across a few locations. So he had, um, he had the old warehouse that he burnt down, then he had two main warehouses behind here, which were all full of cookers, and they used to just ship cookers out all around the country like day in day out and then in front of them he had these two gymnasiums one of them which is mostly still here and the other one which is where sky blue way is now yeah we're just stood on the street looking back at what would have been your your dad's gym and it's been renovated and modernized and then there's a new building at the back yeah but that in the day was 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 his yeah this was his and he was the the the, the biggest name down here for that period uh, simply because he had these businesses going, he had the biggest front, and he was the most active because he was this workaholic, and he was constantly on this little quarter, and he was just working these businesses, and then going off doing his other stuff, his off his work offside, and then bouncing back into here. 
uh, and that's pretty much relentlessly what I did day in, day out. And you, you mentioned earlier there's quite a bit of land that's now been, there's a bypass and a block of flats on it. He, he actually owned the land? Yeah, uh, when he robbed the bank, he, in terms, he was cash poor but asset rich. He had loads of land where Sky Blue Way is now. And when, when he went bankrupt, the council got all that land and they put Sky Blue Way over it. And so it's kind of sliced some of his empire away. All the warehouses went and the men's gym went, but it was only the female gym that remained. Yeah. And then onto the high street again. This, you know, you, your dad wouldn't recognise this, would he? No. There's, there's no pubs or pool halls or there's no clubs. And it, it was a real bustling place back then. It was back when before supermarkets it was just every weekend this was just a real packed place uh, and it was quite an orthodox as well like I said you had that mixture of people here and you had people who just come here and just stay at the pub all day yeah. and they might buy and sell all day <laughs> and it, it was just a real I suppose he kind of loved this sort of area it's his sort of place I can see the attraction even to, I mean today it's a you know it's, it's, it's a respectable high street just in the city centre and you know it's there's a lot of people about isn't it it's got a buzz about it yeah it's been modernized it's very cosmopolitan now yes so where is the bank that he robbed the bank is right at the top on the corner so, so we're a few hundred meters away from uh, the, the fitness centers so we're stood now with our backs to the gym and up onto the main road so to speak and turn left you can't see it but the, the road goes straight up and the bank's up there and is it still there? It's still there. It doesn't operate as a bank. I'm not sure what it is now. Oh. It was it stopped. It, it was empty for quite a few years. Um, but given they're renovating the whole street, it should be becoming something by now again. All right. Well, we'll have a walk up the street and see what the bank's doing. Jason, we've walked up the road to the top of the street, and we're at a crossroads with quite a busy ring road as it is today. And there's a, a bank on the left-hand side. The building is still there and it was a Midland bank I believe that's right and it's it's for sale and you can see it's a disused bank as they had in the day and this is where your father robbed the bank that's right it was it was cash poor he needed the money the businesses were being they were, the business were, they were doing well but the money wasn't coming in fast enough he'd borrowed a hell of a lot and so to fill the gap, he'd, he'd start doing little bank robberies. But then this one came about, which was, wasn't was a great bank robbery, looking back. It was quite impulsive. It's 200 metres away from the gymnasiums. And my father was quite distinctive. He was six foot three. And there's always the risk that the staff would have just recognised him, even with his helmet on. He had a crash helmet on. That's right, yeah. And across the way, the police officers had been tipped off. Um, a guy from the city who knew of the robbery was going to happen. He tipped them off, and so they had undercover officers over the road playing football, except they didn't know the robbery was, wasn't going to happen until like nearly five o'clock that day, so they'd been there all day, uh, on and off, just playing football. So um, the police were actually laying in wait for him? Laying in wait, and they had, been, they had a long wait for him. And then five minutes before it closed, him and another guy called Norrie, they went in with their motorcycle helmets. Um, they had some, I think they had some money to change was their, their reason for going in. Uh, and then they just revealed the shotguns and just said, you know, everyone on the ground. Uh, and then they just emptied the safe. Except the safe was low on money. It was supposed to be Friday. It was supposed to be the best time. Um, but it was low on money, which should have been a clue as to the something was up. And then when they left and they came out, they realised it was just silence outside. 
and there's just armed police waiting. So they actually just come out the front door of the bank and got arrested or they got arrested, it was just down on the floor. You know what's you know what happens from this point. Um, and looking back it was quite a foolish and a, a foolish robbery. There wasn't a great deal of planning in it. It had been involved in robberies before, but they were well planned in groups. This was just like an an ad hoc robbery at short notice. Like in desperation for money to Yeah, he must have thought it was easy pickings and prop his business up. Yeah. So the police were in way, it gets arrested, and were the guns real? Uh, my dad's gun was real. Uh, Norris's uh, partner wasn't, he had a duplicate, and he'd been told that, you know, you have a duplicate, anything happens, you're going to get a lighter sentence. But as it was, they both got 10 years equally. So 10 years each? 10 years each, uh, which was quite standard as I, as I now understand it for that time. Uh, and the idea was if the, if the robbery came off and the police weren't here and it was a they managed to get away they returned to the gym the idea was they returned to the gym they've got alibi lots of people have seen him that day he's the boss so he's everyone's going to assume he's on the premises or nearby as I explained earlier we had three or four businesses down there so there would have been enough people to corroborate any sort of uh, alibi yeah so he arrested and off he went and what did he actually serve was it over six he served six and a half um, he said a bit at Winston Green, then he went to Long Larton, and he spent the greater part of the sentence at Long Larton Prison. He made a lot of contacts at Long Larton because they're all cat A, yeah. all very serious, and a lot of those contacts he'd have for life after that. And that's when he started he making kind of, his contacts to future crime. Yeah, his contacts would become a lot more national. I think before then they'd been regional, some in London and Glasgow, and but then they really he did really broaden by going to Long Larton. And then the last few years, he bounced, bounced from prison to prison. And a lot of that was accumulating contacts and um, people, getting in touch with people he wanted to work with when he came out. Yeah. Now, earlier on, I, I got your name wrong, didn't I? I said Jason Spencer. Ah. Uh, and you're, you're not. You're Jason Wilson, That's aren't correct, you? What, what yes. happened to your name? Um, I changed it years later when I worked for my dad. There were several reasons for changing it. But one reason was um, I was an artist for a good many years. And I was cutting a line between that and my new future. Um, my dad's business, the drugs business, was going to bring a lot of grief my way. And I'd met somebody and I wanted to start afresh. So I changed to Wilson. And just as he had years ago, he changed from Shipley to Spencer. So it seemed almost like a family tradition. That's what we, strangely enough, did. <laughs> and why did he change to Spencer? Do we really know? Uh, there's several re- The main reason was he was... Is the name Shipley had become quite notorious in Coventry. You couldn't get credit if you come up with Shipley. People would be, you're not that Tony Shipley that we've... Because <laughs> everybody read the papers then, and he was yes. frequently in the papers. Yeah. So he changed it when he came out of prison in 78. Started afresh. Intention was he was just going to be a businessman from that point on. And he was for a good while, until he needed money from other sources. And gradually, he diversified and went back to old habits. And the... Uh, we were talking earlier that the club that he burgled in his early days was the Spencer Club, wasn't it? That's right. Is that I any do, connection? I do wonder if that's where <laughs> he got the name from. Um, it seems a, a great coincidence. Yeah. Definitely. So, yeah, it's uh, just nice to visit on the street where it all happened in your dad's day. And it's... Uh, completely different now. <laughs> completely different. And, yeah, your dad would have... Uh, not approved. There's no no second hand shops and gas cookers. No, and there's hardly any pubs here now. Yeah. Yeah, the buzz that was here back then is a different vibe now. Like I said, it's more modern, cosmopolitan. And back then it was more like 
like I said, I watched those old series of mine down. It reminds me of down here. Yeah. Where there was that many shops and so many self-employed people. In a time when most people did work for somebody else. But his friends all had their own businesses, every one of them. And they're all into something and they're associated with some line of business. So, yeah. Well, thank you very much then. And uh, at least we've visited the scene, Sally. And we have. As we say, we put our feet on the street and go to where it all happened. So listening to Jason, he seems to think that the robbery was a bit a bit sloppy and unplanned. Yes, he does say that, but however, when you think about it, clearly there was planning and the police got some information passed to them or whatever to stake out the bank and lie and wait for them. So clearly they were aware of this bank robbery being planned. And we met Gary, who had a different take on the run-up to that bank robbery and Gary worked for Tony in the male gym on Far Gosford Street. I was working at a gym in town which was the, it's called Dick Hubbard's and we used to have a lot of characters coming in there. It wasn't a bodybuilding gym, it was a fitness centre yeah. but it was the first chain, corporate chain in the UK, we had 11 clubs. And mysteriously one Saturday night it burnt down. Oh, a few people have mentioned this. Right. So, well, I got arrested in the, the following morning for it, me and another guy, because we had keys. For a few months, we were being blamed. So, yeah. obviously, the club was burned down. So, I started then looking for like, somewhere else to work, fairly yeah. sharpish afterwards. When I told your dad about the club burning down, he seriously thought I did it, and he just yeah. thought, I like him. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think he had a flat experience of that, didn't he? Yeah, a few people blamed his dad for that fight. You know. Did they? They thought he's got a gym open. It's coincidence this other... Yeah, I never centers. heard that, you know. The equipment was all hydraulic, which again yeah. was, a, was a first, but it did cost yeah. a lot of dosh. And of course, then downstairs was the bodybuilding gym, where Tony was so different to any of the other people that I'd worked with, with it, because he didn't know anything about the industry particularly either. Yeah. He was relying on other people. And that's why he was pulling people in. He's kind of good at using other people's brains. Yeah, but, it, but but he knew what he was doing, though. Yeah. But I did think he wasted a lot of money, obviously. And it was a slow start. I read in the book that he was teaming with people. We were struggling to get members in, especially into the prison. The bodybuilding side was busy. Yeah. But it wasn't that big. Because in the book, I do mention that I asked him about that. And he yeah. says it's slow getting the men's. The women's was going OK. Yeah. But the men's, but he said the men didn't spend as much. That's right. Which was a bit of an issue. They yeah. just come in, did what they were going to do and left. Yeah. But Whereas the women would stay there for hours. Yeah. He was losing that joviality that he had. Yeah. Because he was like a really pleasant person to be around. He was always like smiling. But he started to, you could see, you could see he was pressured. Yeah. You could feel it. He tried to hide it, but you, but you could just see it. And he's not only that, but just his body language and everything. He was like, he was in and out, in and out, doing stuff. Like you yeah. say, like just juggling plates. Yeah, always juggling. You, and you could it? see it a mile off. And it reaches a point where knowing, it's, knowing it's overwhelming, yeah. Yeah. And then, then the build-up to the to the robbery, which was it was. This is the fascinating part as to... Yeah. Because you, you observe things and you still remember now that I, I've just not heard yeah. before, yeah. which is the... Well, the courtyard, like an echo chamber as well. So when he come in... Well, you'd hear the bike start. This is like I remember it coming this is in a week or two before the robbery, isn't it? About two weeks before. I remember hearing the bike coming into the yard, thinking nothing of it, and then hearing it start and hearing it speed off and thinking, "Wow!" And I didn't know it was your dad because there weren't any windows looking out to the courtyard from my gym. Yeah, it was all enclosed. And then it went on the following day, and of course I'd seen that it was your dad. And then the third day was when you start thinking, "What's he doing?" And then it continued. And he was doing it like two, three times a day. 
What was he doing indeed? Well, we know now that he was working potentially on an escape route and that he may have been timing himself, planning a robbery that would land him in prison. To find out more about what went wrong and more of Tony's schemes, you're going to have to listen to our second episode of The Old Man and Me. It's going to be released a week after this episode, so please use your podcast app to follow or subscribe to True Crime Investigators UK, and then you won't miss it. Thanks, of course, go to Jason Wilson. Without his book, The Old Man and Me, this series just wouldn't have been possible. Our thanks also go to Tony's ex-wife, Jane, and also his friends, Pete and Gary, for sharing their thoughts and their recollections. Our editors are Angelica Dabbs and Ed Allen, and our executive producer is Pete Allen, all from Carrot Cruncher Media. Mm-hmm.